My background is both economics and finance, so I feel very confident in what I'm saying. You know, this is the first global, private, meaning no government oversight, digital, rules-based, monetary system. When I'm explaining it like that, I, I ask everyone to listen to each of those words. Each one of them is very important. And this is one of the most profound innovations of our time. Hello there from a very rainy Bedford. I've just been woken up by a crazy thunderstorm. Loads of lightning, loads of thunder, and I've got to set off on a seven-hour drive now to Edinburgh, which isn't the best weather for it, but I can't wait to get up there. The UK Bitcoin conference is happening, and they've put together an amazing set of speakers. So yes, looking forward to seeing any of you up there. And if you want to get some real bit for merch, I've loaded up my car. I will be there. I will be selling my merch. Come and say hello, and hopefully you can get a beer with some of you. I'll probably need that after a seven-hour drive. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an amazing interview, something I've been working on for a very long time. I've got Kathy Wood from ARK Invest on the show. Now, this is a show I've wanted to make for so long. Now, ARK Invest have had a difficult, what do you say, a difficult year. Yeah, some of the things they've been investing in haven't done so well. You know, they've seen a drop in the value of their ETF, but they are a fund that invests in some of the most innovative, world-changing technologies. So naturally, there's going to be speculation cycles with this. But Kathy is somebody I've wanted to talk to for a long time. I want to understand why she invests in such disruptive technologies. Because even though people like us are used to crazy volatility with Bitcoin, you can experience that with some of these investments. But I also wanted to talk to her about a bunch of other stuff. Deflationary signals that the Fed is missing. How she actually got orange-pilled. And also investing in Bitcoin early. Now, we only managed to get an hour together. I could have honestly chatted to Kathy for probably five hours. She's such a fascinating character. I really wanted to hear more about her investment thesis and what ARK is looking to invest in in the future. But I will work on getting her back on the show at some point in the future. Now, I know you're going to enjoy this. But if you've got any questions about this show, if you want to get back to me, please do. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And also, I'm in a very good mood. Following Bedford's defeat this week, we got back to our winning ways. We won 2-0 away at Letchworth. We're still top of the league. We're 12 points clear. We're looking good for promotion, but it's very early on, so I shouldn't get too excited. My manager, Rob, will probably go crazy at me for saying this. Anyway, if you're in Scotland, looking forward to seeing you. I'm going to be setting off now. Apart from that, enjoy the show, and I'll see you all next week. We're joined by Liz today. Oh, Liz. We always have uh, somebody up on there. So it's been uh, Peter Shear. Oh, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Wow. Well, kind well, of crazy what's going on there, huh? It is um, the only way to call it in the UK at the moment is a shit show. Yeah, I have a different point of view though. Okay. Than most people are. We on? I'm. We're going. We're, we're going. going. This is. Oh, it. we're going. We're on. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I am a disciple of Art Laffer, Laffer Curve, supply side economics, and uh, I actually think cutting taxes is a very good idea. And um, because I think it will, especially with Brexit now, it will, um, it will distinguish the UK that much more from Europe, which, if you ask me, is the real you-know-what show. Yes. <laughs> right? Well, yeah. I mean, and we also have this opportunity in the UK now, uh, uh, specifically with Bitcoin. Um, yes. Uh, we aren't. Uh, restricted by the EU, uh, right. we have an opportunity to become a centre for it, and it's something I'm trying to work on. You've lived in the UK, right? Yes, uh, I was a, I was very young. I lived yes. uh, near Cambridge for five years. That's not far from where I'm from. Yeah. So I tell a lot of people where I'm from, and they've never heard of it. But you've probably heard of Bedford. Yes, I have. Yes. Absolutely. Like thirty. Well, there's an. Since you've been there, they built a bypass, so we can get there in twenty, thirty minutes. Oh wow! Yeah. Very good. And. Uh, did you also live in Ireland? Lived in Ireland for a year as uh, my uh, father was moving from one set of contracts to another in the United States. So D Dublin or a no? Uh, we lived in the southwest part of Ireland, so Kerry, South, the yeah. Dingle Peninsula, and I was fluent in at the time Gaelic. They'd call it Irish now, but yeah, uh, yeah. So my my dad's Irish. He oh, lives, really? Yeah, he lives in Donegal. Oh, my my father's from Donegal. I was just there. No way. Yes. So he Near lives... Letterkenny. <gasps> of course I know. Well, my dad lives in Ballantra, which is just south of Donegal. Okay. And uh, yeah, he grew up in Leash, uh, moved to England, and then retired back there about 12 years ago. Oh. Huh. That's funny. Huh. Yes. Well, welcome to What Bitcoin Did. You're one of 
three people I'd left on my target list because I've I've managed to interview everyone. I've been lucky. I've had Bukele and Zaba and some people are very difficult to get. And I had you, Jack Dorsey, and Elizabeth Stark left. Oh, well, I'm honored. Thank well, you. We're honored. Um, I, tried to, I messaged you on Twitter once because you followed me, which, by the way, I'm sorry about my Twitter. But, uh, oh, no. I, I, I was just looking uh, at, at uh, your feed today. I'm, no, you're very interesting. I'm a little bit provocative sometimes. Yes, but. that's what I like. Well, thank you for coming on the show. There's a lot we want to talk to you about. I'm going to try and get a, get through a lot uh, today. Um, and uh, Danny also was very excited about this. We actually came to Miami specifically to, to oh, meet you. Um, I've known Yassine you. for a while. Yassine's been on the show and uh, he's helped. Our fearless crypto leader. Yes. Fearless crypto yes, leader. Mandra. That, that word's banned around here. Oh, sorry. It's Bitcoin. Okay. It's called Bitcoin. Oh, yes. Yes, sorry. Bitcoin. Mm. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> It's a, a rare opportunity to talk to you, so I might cover a few things that seem a little bit basic. And uh, But I think what I know from speaking to the people who are associated with the show, the first thing everyone wanted to know was kind of your background. Mm. Um, you know, we as a team were talking about this beforehand, and we've seen you do all these interviews, but we don't really see... We don't really hear you talk about your background, how you came to be running ARC. What was the journey? Yes. Okay. Well, um, Art Laffer... Yep. Uh, I was one of my professors at the University of Southern California, introduced me to Capital Group on the West Coast. Capital Group uh, at the time, and, and still, I believe, was the best research organization uh, in the asset management industry, I believe. And um, so I got there, and one of my first projects was to work. So this was, now this is going to date me, and that's fine. I'm proud of my age. So I was in college when I started at Capital. Um, it was 1977, and before, before, I was born. before you were born. And uh, my first project was to work on Hong Kong 1997. Think about that, 20-year time yeah. horizon. And I thought to myself, I love this. I mean, the world is my oyster. We get to learn about how we get to paid to learn. That's unbelievable. So I fell in love with the business uh, back then. And, um, and, and I've seen the arc of our business. And I, what I mean is not ARK, I mean ARC. So back then, there were no computers, no wireless phones, nothing. Um, we, we barely had whiteout, you know, that's how primitive we were. Um, but we were doing real research and think uh, a lot of critical thinking about how the world was going to work, what companies would do well in this new world. And, um, We've gone from that, and, and the heyday of that was 80s and 90s. And then we had the tech and telecom crash and the uh, 08, 09 meltdown. And the world has got, in our business has gone passive. You know, if you go to some of these conferences, ETF conferences, for example, investors don't even really know what's in these ETFs and they don't care. All they care is they're going to act a certain way in different kinds of market environments. So the art uh, associated with active management, I think, uh, has been lost in great measure because of these crises and risk aversion, career risk, uh, business risk. Anyway, so I, I did make my way. Capital Group, uh, Jenison Associates, I was there for 18 years. Grew up there, uh, Sig Segalis, incredible mentor. He's still the chief investment officer there at the age of 88, I think. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And uh, then I ended up at Alliance Bernstein after uh, after starting a, a hedge fund. And we worked for, it was the largest woman-owned hedge fund in the world at that time. And we hit it at a perfect time. It was 98, 99, 2000. And my partners, whose family's fortune this was, uh, decided, okay, we, we had tripled their money and, you know, we weren't going to build out institutionally. So I went off to Alliance Bernstein, uh, the first portfolio manager, um, um, brought in from the outside, um, mostly because of the way I've always done things, starting from the top down, 
uh, and being as bottom-up stock research-driven uh, as any other team out there. But they wanted someone who had more of a macro uh, orientation and just came at the world from a bit of a different angle. So I was there for 12 years, head of uh, global thematic strategies. But this movement towards passive uh, was intensifying, especially after 0809. And I was becoming more and more of a, a different duck. And I realized that I would probably need to leave and, and did for that reason, um, and start my own firm. Wow. And, and get back to bringing real research into the investment process and that, and, and meeting and, and fulfilling an unmet need out there now. It's unbelievable what's happened in the last 20 years, how much research has disintegrated in our industry. And that is a real problem if we're talking about efficient allocation of capital. You know, these benchmarks and indexes are all backwards looking. The, the biggest stocks and companies in those indexes are there because of past success. But if we're right, and this is why I founded ARC, and we're going to see more disruptive, I mean, truly transformative innovation over the next five to 20 years than we have ever seen. I mean, it, it dwarfs even telephone, electricity, automobile. Those were three platforms at the same time. We have five brewing now, and they involve 14 different technologies, all of which are, are growing exponentially. So if we're right, then the traditional world order will be disrupted, and those indexes are not going to be a good place to invest. Now, what I'm fighting here is history, because as that 20-year phenomenon took place, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more people investing in indexes, the better those indexes did. Right. Okay. So we've had our first breakthrough, though, with the FANGs. They're yep. breaking down. And those were the biggest companies in uh, most large-cap uh, benchmarks. They're breaking down because of disruption. TikTok is wreaking havoc. And so that's the first case in point. Watch out. So the FANGs are breaking down. Um We've seen the disruption in social media a little bit more. Um, what, what are the particular challenges that some, someone like Amazon or Google will have? Is there like a limit to how much Amazon can actually build and create? So Amazon, um, Amazon is not a social network, and it does seem like social commerce uh, is growing in share. Right. So it's not a social network. It will become, it's not going to disappear, of course. It'll become like the Walmart of online retail is my guess. And Walmart's been a decent stock. It's not, not a barn burner, but, you know, and they, of course, have AWS. That's facing a lot more competition from Google and Microsoft. So it won't be as easy as it has for the last 15 years, I would say. Um, it's a mature company. Yeah. Um, now, I say that with the full understanding that online retail, as a percent of total retail in the United States, is not much more than 15%. But the, And so there's room to mm. grow. It's just the social commerce, you know, buying. I'm hearing, and, and I'm seeing the demographic be more men, I think, than women, although both are, but seeing something on Instagram and buying it, you know, with Shopify as the back end and really helping that process along. So it'll become more competitive, but there is a lot of share uh, to gain from uh, traditional retail still. Yeah, it seems like Facebook and Netflix have, have the biggest challenges there. They because do. the problem with Facebook, it was kind of a novelty idea, but it's, I know most of my friends just don't use it anymore. They find it boring. And Netflix just have that uh, massive amount of competition with other streaming platforms, but a very high production cost. I think what we're seeing, and, and we talked a lot about this uh, when we did own Facebook, we, we said the network effects and uh, work, you know, that venture capital these days was practically built on that, you know, an app that goes viral. But how about the opposite, uh, you know, the the negative network effect, just as you say, many people are dropping off. That means less interesting uh, for for many more users. So, you know, we're probably looking at the negative network effect for for Facebook. Um, 
Instagram, it seems, is is still fine, and and WhatsApp as well. Um, but Facebook is a huge part of the franchise. So, yes. Yeah. And then you asked about Netflix. Um, they're getting into advertising, but it's not going to move the needle as much as uh, people think. And yes, the competition is not just other streaming platforms. It's TikTok, anything that takes a consumer's time. Yes. And TikTok is addictive. As I'm I have sure a 12-year-old you know. daughter. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, occasionally she sends me a video that she wants me to watch, a little seven-second clip, and then half an hour later I'm still there, clicking through, <laughs> clicking through. That's right. Uh, and they're learning more about you so that they can really get you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting. Have you, have you spent much time researching the work that Facebook has been doing with the metaverse, and do you believe that is a significant opportunity? Because it feels like this is kind of a little bit of a Hail Mary for them to save what they were. You know, I was reading an article about uh, their efforts in metaverse yesterday. A a reporter, I think, uh, I think it was the New York Times. Not quite sure. Maybe it was Bloomberg. um, Was saying, "Okay, I need to learn about this metaverse." And you could tell there's a a little bit of a movement stirring, but you know, the hardware is a real source of friction. You know, if you, when we think about the metaverse, what, what's the first metaverse experience I've had? It was Zoom, except it's with our real faces and not avatars. Um, some people enjoy not seeing other people and living in uh, that world. Uh, I don't think it's going to be as mass market as any of their current products. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how they weave, you know, NFTs into the ecosystem. Uh, Yasin and I were speaking on the way over uh, about artificial intelligence and how, you know, in the with the creator community, I mean, AI is going to do some mind-blowing things. And uh, NFTs and, and AI could be a, a beautiful match. Um, Facebook's advanced in artificial intelligence and what I, but, but when you say Hail Mary, I would say this is going to take years for them. I don't think, I think as the negative network effects associated with Facebook evolve, they, it will be very difficult for them to make that up with the metaverse. I think it, you know, I think maybe in the next five years, uh, maybe. Yeah, I found myself increasingly moving to Twitter now. Mm -hmm. I barely use Facebook because the novelty is worn off and, there were just too many adverts. And I feel like in the race between the two of them, it's kind of like the hare and the tortoise, really. And I feel like Twitter's been the tortoise, building the experience first and always focusing on that first, where I feel, always felt like Facebook uh, sacrificed the experience to monetize. Monetization. Yeah. Yes. Well, and Twitter, of course, did not. And that's yeah. why one stock did very well and the other stock did not. Um, but We'll see what happens with Elon. Um, I'm excited. Mm. Um, I like the idea that uh, this idea, I like his idea around no censorship, you know, and so we'll see what happens. I'm sure it'll go to another extreme and there'll be some kind of iteration. This show is brought to you by the Texas Blockchain Council. Now on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country Austin, Texas. And now this is a two-day event of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two with top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more can you ask for? And I'm not just promoting it here on my podcast. I'm going to be heading to the event in Austin. I'm going to be in Vegas with Danny, but I'm going to be catching a flight over to Austin to see my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing a very important person on stage. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to hang out. Right. If you want to find out more, please head over to TexasBlockchainSummit.org and use the discount code PeterMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you there. This offer is valid until the end of October, and I hope to see you all down in Austin, Texas. Next up, it is Gemini, who are also the lead sponsor of my football club, Real Bedford. Now, I am exclusively using Gemini for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I am only buying 
it is a time to buy for me. We're hodlers, right? We're hodling through this. Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips. They have crushed it with the UX. And with that, I set up my DCA for twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Now, both the app and the website make it really easy for buying and selling Bitcoin. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security from day one. And they are running a special offer for listeners of my podcast, What Bitcoin Did?, all you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds and miners active in UK and Europe. And they are now expanding globally. And they have this incredible network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know, like me, a whole bunch of you had trouble with finding banking service providers. So if you're looking for a bank who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you're going to want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today, we have my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I am now using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. I remember when I used to use the previous Wasabi, you know, it's a little bit tricky trying to understand how to do a coin join. All that's taken away. It's all done automatically for you. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you never leak your IP address. There's also no minimum denomination, so any amount you receive from CoinJoin is totally private. Now, privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently, and with Wasabi 2.0, this makes it so easy. So if you want to find out more, please do go and check out wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. What is it like, though, running a firm that uh, invests in such disruptive technologies? Because uh, it's a bit more of a gamble in some ways because you're gambling on innovations working you, you know so, and so it must be i mean i've only invested in two things which is myself and bitcoin so i'm not an investor i don't know anything about investing okay. um but it and the reason i invest in bitcoin because it is a disruptive technology and I, and I believe in it and i i think it will change the world but in doing so i'm living the roller coaster of that investment absolutely is it similar across all speculative kind of disruptive technologies so in the case, the, the way we go about our investing is we identify the technology at the core, right? And then we try and understand the, the learning curve. And, you know, those are expressed through cost declines and ultimately price declines. And we're looking for technologies that are going to span sectors. So they'll start maybe niche, but will ultimately go mass market. So these cost declines open up new markets over time. Um, and, and then finally, these platforms serve as launching pads for more innovation. Uh, so they'll be perpetuated. Um, and we have found, we use something called rights law as we're, as we're trying to figure out learning curves and, uh, Wright's law says for every cumulative doubling in the number of units produced, so this is more on the, in the physical realm, um, costs will decline at a consistent percentage rate for each technology. And these rates are pretty phenomenal. If you're looking at DNA sequencing, it's uh, around 40% for every cumulative doubling, one to two, two to four. And we're at very low base in many of these. 
uh, we got the our electric vehicle forecast was much closer because we saw how rapidly battery costs were coming down and how the total cost of ownership of an electric vehicle would be lower than that of a gas-powered vehicle. And that was about two years ago. No wonder electric vehicles have taken off. We're known for our Tesla investment. Mm. And that's because we're following this cost decline and saying, wait a minute, uh, this is going to cross over electric vehicles. The sticker price, uh, this is before COVID and all the supply shocks, um, this year or next year. And, you know, these are better cars and they're more environmentally friendly. There's a, they have a lot going for them. Um, so we are always surprised at how long it takes others to see that this world is happening. And the reason is the way that our financial markets are set up. Auto analysts uh, were supposed to be the analysts on Tesla. Well, they are analysts of internal combustion engine machines, right? They're not the right analysts. We need battery analysts. We need robotics analysts when we go to autonomous. We need artificial intelligence analysts, and you need them all to collaborate. That's anathema in the traditional world. There's a lot of turf warfare around stocks. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. Well, there's going to be a lot of that in, in the innovation space because of all of the convergences between and among the different technologies. So um, I think the surprise to me is how long it takes traditional Wall Street to catch up. And we need the whites of the eyes of surprises, earning surprises, revenue surprises, unit surprises, share gains. And it, it, even then it takes a while. So that's, that's, but, but I always say to our team, and I think what inspires me every day is our analyst team. You know, they're coming up with new ways of looking at the world. They have one foot in the new world, so always bringing in new ideas. And what I always say to them is truth wins out. Truth will win out. Now, sometimes if you, if you look at what happened during the bubble in the late nineties, Sometimes the market's willing to look out 10 years, 20 years, and value stocks on the number of potential eyeballs they might have at some point around the world. That was the crazy 90s, and many companies were funded then that never should have been funded. Today, we're in the opposite environment. Uh, the time horizon is one quarter. They want their profits now. And they're very short-sighted. So it's a very difficult environment for our strategy, but innovation solves problems. Mm. We have many more problems. COVID was the launching pad uh, for our strategy. We could do no wrong in 2020. Uh, innovation solves problems. Then inflation and interest rates start moving up. Um, and we can have a discussion about that. We might have a little bit of a different point of view, but um, our stocks were the biggest victim because of fears of inflation and interest rates. Um, but again, the, these are the inflation and interest rates are causing more problems and innovation does solve problems. And I think the growth rates, the exponential growth rates uh, uh, of our companies uh, should uh, overcome any fears about inflation and interest rates. It is the more mature growth companies like the FANGs that really need to uh, fear this kind of environment. Nonetheless, with a one quarter time horizon and RPEs, you know, in the stratosphere compared to others, even though we assume they're going to market like multiples within five years, uh, we're terribly disadvantaged in a one quarter time horizon market, which is not what investing should be. Yeah, it's an interesting point you make there with regards to uh, your your price being a victim of of the the markets, and you know a lot has been made of the the, the fall in, in your price. But how do you is there more context to that in terms of uh, price appreciation over previous years? Because the the poor analogy I can give you is whenever the Bitcoin price drops, my dad calls me, and he's like, "Have you sold some? Why haven't you sold some? It was it." 70,000, now it's at 20,000. He did the same four years ago when it's 20,000 to 3,000. I said, well, firstly, Dad, I'm hugely significantly up. I've been investing since 2017. And also, my uh, time horizon on this is is over a decade. So I just kind of tend to ignore that. Yes. What's the context of the performance of your ETF over 
over the longer term? Well, first of all, you're going to win. Uh, I hope so. Oh, you will. You will. And uh, we do the same thing, but we perhaps do something, and maybe you do this, we average down and concentrate into our highest conviction stocks. Now, if you only have two assets, you and Bitcoin, I guess that's a little bit more difficult to do. But we started out last February, February 21. Um, we had been up 360% from the bottom of the coronavirus to the peak in, in, um, our peak in February of 21. And, and, um, and during that time, we expanded the number of stocks in our portfolio because we had been highly concentrated at the bottom in COVID towards our highest conviction names. And so we went from roughly 33 names to 58 names. You know, there were IPOs, there were lots of exciting opportunities. And then starting February of 21 to our low in May, and we think that's the low, but we're getting close there again. You never know. The, the Fed, I, I do believe, is a big menace here. Um, we were down 75%. Think about that. Up 360, down 75%. I can't do the math on that. Where, where does that put you? Where does it put it? You know, if you've, uh, let's see, someone just asked me the question saying since inception, our uh, strategy is up maybe a percentage point uh, less than the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, okay. which was single digits. Um, but if, if you're telling me that after this bloodbath, I'm saying, oh my gosh, have we, you know, this is a great setup for the future if we're just behind by that much because we are so much more volatile um, than than the the benchmarks. And, you know, there is going to be a, a change there too. When, when the shift away from benchmarks happens, uh, we will be the self-fulfilling prophecy or we will be the beneficiary of the self-fulfilling prophecy or self-fulfilling trend, which is away from benchmarks towards innovation because it's going to become so obvious. So that 75% decline, why does that happen? It happens because most portfolio managers, even the active ones, so they really are trying to invest, they're still investing close to their benchmarks and they don't want to be so far away from their benchmarks. Our stocks are not in benchmarks except for Tesla. Uh, and so Tesla, believe it or not, has held up better than most of our other stocks because it's in the benchmarks. Um, when risk on happens, then they all start migrating and 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 taking uh, you know um, positions in some of our names, and so that gives us the lift. Is, is it particularly difficult? Does it bring a new challenge that the Fed's decisions will impact how your fund performs and what would you wish from the fed so that you could just focus on on the fund and not what they're doing well um we just published an open letter to the fed today okay and uh basically said wait a minute how can you be unanimous in your decision making you fed board members unanimous at, at the last few votes when there's so much conflicting evidence out there. And uh, so, you know, yes, we feel as though the Fed is making a mistake here and that, yes, uh, high uh, beta stocks, which would be our kinds of stocks, more volatile than the market, um, do get hit disproportionately. But something's happening now, and it's happening with Bitcoin as well, which I find very interesting. So our strategy bottomed intraday, the flagship, on May 12th. And, um, and the S&P and NASDAQ have broken bo below their lows. Last week, they broke below their last lows. We did not. Now, maybe I'm jinxing myself, and we will now. But um, our strategy has held up better since May. And same with Bitcoin. Same with Bitcoin after the, the, the volatility in May. Um, it's, it's held in much better. It hasn't hit new lows, successive new lows. It's in a range, uh, much like our strategy is. During a bear market and towards the end of a bear market, our strategy starts outperforming. Why? There's a saying in our business that the new leadership shows itself toward the end of a bear market. It starts outperforming. So at the end of 0809, for example, um, I, I was at a different firm, but our flagship strategy, 
bottomed in relative terms, uh, uh, November 24th. I remember it well. And um, yet the market didn't bottom until May of 09, I mean, March of 09. And in the first quarter, the market as measured by the S&P was down 10%. We were flat. So, and then we came out flying. And I'd like to think that's what's going to happen. The problem is the Fed here. And in the piece we wrote today, we said, please consider the conflicting evidence and at least debate. You know, it's a, talk about the risk of centralization. This is a massive risk because it's not just the Fed. Uh, it's, it, it's not the Fed board members. It's probably one member, and that's Powell, who's insisting on unanimity in their fight against inflation. So what they're doing, what they've just done, is raised interest rates 13-fold from 0.25 on the Fed funds rate to, uh, to 3.25, and they're going to go to four, we believe, on November 2nd. That's a 16-fold increase in interest rates. Vol How does that impact you directly? Does well, it change the incentives for investors? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, fixed income is more attractive than it was. It's also, there's a flight to safety to fi fixed income, to cash or, or, or bonds. Um, <clears throat> so if you look at what he's doing, I think uh, Chairman Powell thinks he's the reincarnation of Chairman Volcker. Now, I was early in my career during Chairman Volcker's reign, <clears throat> And he was fighting an inflation that really started with the Vietnam War in 1964, April, and then in May 64 was the Great Society, all of these social programs that President Johnson launched. Uh, that was the beginning of the inflation that Volcker inherited in 78 or 79, I think it was 79, 15 years, and it was embedded. There was cost push. People had gotten used to working around inflation, demanding uh, certain wages and so forth. So that was 15 years. By the time the Fed recognized that it might have overstayed its welcome, it was maybe 15 months. That's a lot different. Mm. And, and this has been associated with supply shocks every step of the way. COVID, supply chain, Russian war. It's hard to separate out. And I think the key here, and this is where I'm going to have the biggest argument with the uh, the people who really think inflation, is, the genie's out of the bottle. Um, I believe the velocity of money now is going to start falling again. It actually peaked in 97, has been falling, falls at an accelerated rate during crises. And if the velocity of money starts falling now, that M2, it looks like M2 is going to come in below 3% year over year for September. If velocity is falling on top of that, that means nominal GDP growth is flat to negative on a year-over-year -year basis. That's a killer for companies' profits. Now, in this environment, the reason why we would start outperforming is because our fundamentals are better. We, you know, we're the new world. Our revenue growth is much stronger than GDP. And in times of turmoil and trouble, again, innovation solves problems, um, revenue growth accelerates. Uh, certainly that was the case in COVID. And I think the carnage of the last, well, certainly in 2021 for us is, you know, our strategy being dismissed by many old timers in the industry as, oh, just a stay at home COVID strategy. All those stay at home stocks are, are now going to, uh, are, are going to go into negative growth, which has not happened. So. It's it's interesting. I think the Fed is a problem. I think they're making a mistake. I think the world is paying for it. If we think there's pressure here, the emerging markets, you know, we're going to ruin our um, status as world's reserve currency because, and I remember there was a similar situation in the 80s, but we responded to it when the dollar was causing so many problems for the rest of the world. Treasury ministers from around the world got together in 1985. Uh, there was both the Plaza Accord and the Louvre mm. Accord, and they agreed to sell dollars uh, and and buy back the other currencies to support those other currencies and to prevent the deflationary bust that was being caused by 
currency implosions in the emerging markets and their debt service exploding because it was dollar-denominated debt. The same thing's going on now. The same thing's going on now. And I think we're going to see more rips in the fabric of the global financial system. I think what happened in the UK around mm-hmm. pension funds was really more about banks. Uh, those pension funds weren't going to meet those margin calls. And that was that the banks were the the counterparty, right? Uh, so they had to come in. So the BOE has already reversed its monetary policy. Now they say it's just till October 14th. Well, they just extended again, didn't oh, they? Oh, did they? Yeah, Another week? That. Yeah. I think I might they have heard that they was just it today. announced today. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe another week or something. Because and so what's happening now? Uh, what what are these pension funds selling so that they can be made a little m- more right? You know, instead of upside down, uh, they're selling the easiest uh, financial instruments to sell: treasury securities, government bonds. So that's one of the reasons we're seeing our gov- government bonds back up. Uh, and, you know, so, so we've got the BOE reversing. You've got the Bank of Japan and, uh, the Chinese central bank, PBOC. Both of them are supporting their currencies. What does that mean? It means they're selling dollars and buying their currencies. So it's freeing up some dollar liquidity and there is a dearth of dollar liquidity out there. So I think we're going to see many other central banks doing that. But I also think when the ministers meet, the G20, in uh, November, that the, the odds of another plaza or louvre accord type uh, agreement um are, are going to be pretty high because i think that that we're seeing deflation in a lot of indicators now commodity prices we're seeing inventories overwhelming retailers so i think we're going to see a lot of deflation and, for cyclical reasons and then uh secular reasons as well innovation is deflationary but good deflation um it, it causes bad deflation for from for companies that are going to be disintermediated or disrupted or destroyed. So well, I have to track the dollar price because all my sponsorship contracts are priced in the dollar. And uh, from the start of the year, it's dropped from one one thirty eight to a low of one hundred five. Um, I think we're about one eleven now. Yeah. But um, it's also become. For, very expensive for us to come here to the U.S. to base this operation. Oh, I our, know. Our transport costs, our flight costs have come up. Our, uh, you know, booking an Airbnb, it's essentially it's up twenty five percent this year. Um, so I've been tracking that in terms of what the impact is on us. Um, I've never known the pound to be so low against the dollar. Right. It was two dollars five the first time I came to the U.S. in I think it was two thousand and six. Mm-hmm. What I don't understand, and you'll understand better than me, is what are, what is the benefits to the U.S. of a high uh, a strong dollar, but what are the negatives? So the benefit is it's a powerful anti-inflationary force. Uh, so that's a domestic. That's a domestic consideration. Mm-hmm. It's uh, right, and most commodities are priced in dollars and so forth. The negative is um, we're going to lose our competitiveness, and uh, so we're already seeing trade drop off. Uh, quite significantly. And I think that's going to be, I, we believe we're in a recession and, and trade's part of the reason. Now, interestingly, in the third quarter, if we see a positive GDP, it will be because trade is collapsing, meaning imports falling much faster than exports. And so that helps our GDP in a strange way. Um, and the reason it's happening is we have an inventory glut. So companies are, you know, if you look at uh, Nike's r- report uh, a couple of weeks ago, global sales up three and a half percent, something like that. Their inventories globally up 44%. Their inventories in North America up 68%. And their inventories in transit, probably mostly from China, up 85%. So, you know, it's there's it's overwhelming what's going on and so we're trying to cut back on imports that's going to back up into these other countries as well uh, so we think our recession i th- we think the globe is in a recession and the dollar is exacerbating uh the pain um you know food commodities are priced in dollars and you know these other currencies around the world are uh unwinding and just making it very difficult for populations the fed tipped its hat to this in uh it's in some of its last speeches different members powell included 
Um, but I, I think, um, you know, if we want to remain the reserve currency, um, this is, I don't think, the way to do it long run. What do you think the Fed should do then? Well, I think if I were the Fed, the first thing I would do is from a re- rhetoric point of view, I would start, I would start, um, talking about both sides of the equation. Yes, we see that core CPI and PCE deflator higher than what we would like, 0.6. But headline CPI and PPI actually down, negative. Did you know that? No. No, you didn't, because all we hear about, uh, and then there's in, in my open letter, I put a table with all these commodities in, um, and how much they've fallen from their peak and how much they're down year over year. Yes, here they are. So you can see, and <clears throat> gold hmm. to me, and you can see when they peaked, gold peaked two years ago, more than two years ago. Silver peaked more than two years ago. Lumber more than a year, iron ore, DRAM. Baltic dry. So does that reflect, is this basically a reflection of COVID? Gold and silver was the investment people were making during COVID and then everything else is the supply shock once markets open back up. Yes, I think, uh, but the most important one to me is, there are two I pay more attention than normal to, uh, gold and copper. So gold to me is the inflation hedge that the traditional world has used. And I, I look at, when it peaked, most people don't know that it peaked two years ago. Did you know that? I mean, I, I would have guessed. I mean, because okay. it, it was only because it's one of the few things I did track because I was fighting Peter Schiff online. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> yes. So, so that's two years ago, and it stayed in a, a trading range, seventeen hundred to almost twenty one hundred for two years, more than two years, and it's broken down. Same thing with copper. Now, copper is interesting. Because there's a shift towards electric vehicles, which uh, the content, the copper content in an electric vehicle is two to five times that in a traditional vehicle, right, okay. gas-powered vehicle. So the fact, and so copper was levitating between four and five dollars per pound for a bit, a, a bit over a year, and it's broken down. And you can see it's down twenty percent year over year. Gold is down three percent. Silver down eleven. Uh, lumber down 34. Food and energy are up, but, you know, is monetary policy here to, you know, to exacerbate the problems caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and increase the pain, uh, you know, around the world of people who are, who are being taxed incredibly by higher food and energy prices? I don't think so. So just looking at this and, and that last one down there, we saw this last week. So it's hard to get that number. So the, the industry reported it in the month of August container board. Now this is, this is what we ship goods around in container board, uh, prices dropped 29% in September and are now down 53% year over year. So there's real deflation in the pipeline. And then you have this inventory that's at the, that's at the top of the funnel upstream and then you have inventories at the bottom of the funnel downstream that are overwhelming manufacturers and they're going to cut prices to clear that inventory i was going to say what is the lag here so between uh when you would start to ex- expect to see an impact on oh, prices. we'll see this in the ppi this is going to yeah. get into the ppi uh very quickly very, very quickly. We're starting, it's already, as I mentioned before, mm. PPI was down. I think we're going to see sequential negatives in many inflation indicators that are more headline. These, of course, are more upstream. Um, and so do you think this has nothing really then to do with the raising of the interest rates? I, uh, no, I think that, I think we're in a global recession. Yeah. And that the Fed thinks that we have a 70s-style inflationary problem. So it's, come November 2nd, it will have increased interest rates 16-fold. Never happened in our history before. Mm-hmm. Volcker increased them two-fold from 10 to 20%, right? And a lot of people say, many people dismiss this argument totally. They say, come on, it's such a low base. No, that's the point. We got used to these very low interest rates since 08, 09, and a lot of swaps, and swaps were the problem in the UK. 
were based on the notion that interest rates would give, you know, wouldn't go up very much if they go up at all. And, and so I think we're going to see a lot more swap-related turmoil and um, distress out there. It may happen in the U.S. We know our pension funds uh, aren't as leveraged as the U.K. pension funds are or have been. So we don't know where the next accident, by definition, we don't know where it's going to be. But I think, uh, you know, they raise again and... We'll, we'll find another rip in the global financial fab fabric. Well, we know it's causing a problem in the housing market in the UK now mm. because we have 300,000 people a month who come off fixed rate terms to go into variable. And that's leading to an increase in the supply of properties. I think, didn't you even say one of your friends has put his house up for sale? Yeah, they've had to downsize. Yes. Because they cannot afford to pay these new variable rates. There's, there's not even, a number of the mortgage companies have reduced their products available. I think there's a 40% reduction in prod, products. People don't really know what's going to happen, what the uh, Bank of England's going to do. And so in some ways, this these these rises in interest rates, whilst they're trying to combat inflation, they're causing other problems. Havoc. And it feels to me like, as somebody, I'm not an economist. I am, I'm just a guy who sits down and just, talks crap to people <laughs> but but it seems to me like especially in the uk it, it, every time they pull one thing they're breaking something else yeah and it, uh, to me it seems like nobody knows what the hell they're doing um you know that's one reason i'm such a bitcoin fan you know <laughs> this show is brought to you by bit casino established in 2013 bit casino was the first licensed a bitcoin casino it is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide and not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also offer fast withdrawals and some amazing VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino out there. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to BitCasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings and accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with recent events in the lending industry, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. And they are building out one of the best financial service providers in Bitcoin now, they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation nonsense and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. They only support Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. Not only are they a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I love the service, love what they're doing, love the team, and pleased to be working with them. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also, we have the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known the team over at Swan for ages. Corey, Jan, Brady... And they're pulling out all the stops to make Pacific Bitcoin a celebration of the Bitcoin community. And I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. I will be emceeing the conference along with my good friend Natalie Brunel and Stefan Navera. And there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. You know these people. Lynn Alden, Alice Gladstein and Preston Pish. It's going to be great. Now Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and fun with some unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and they've loaded the conference with parties before and after the event. They're bringing together the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation state adoption, mining to lightning. Now, you do not want to miss the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference. I know it's going to be a special event. As I said, I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to PacificBitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com, PacificBitcoin.com and use the code PETER. Also, today we have Ledger. Now, recent events this year have highlighted just how important self-custody is, and Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin, and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger recently announced the launch of the new Nano S+, Plus, and the larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. 
the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security of all Ledger products. And listen, I have been using Ledger products since 2017. Five years is crazy, right? And absolutely love everything they've done. They are my favorite wallet provider, and they have absolutely crushed it this year. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Okay, let's talk a bit, bit about Bitcoin. It's a Bitcoin show. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would be very interested to hear your orange penning story, how, how you discover Bitcoin, and what was it that convince you that made you realize this is a technology that you did want to invest in? Yes. So when we started ARC, <clears throat> we had four technology platforms, genomic sequencing, uh, robotics, energy storage, and then next generation internet. Um, Brett Winton, our director of research, when we were at Alliance Bernstein together, um, was occasionally bringing into our brainstorm on Fridays this thing called Bitcoin. So that really started in 2011. We started ARC in 2014. Um, I guess we had gone through Mt. Gox. And, and so we said, okay, let's start with next generation internet. And as, as time went on and we did our research on Bitcoin, and the first paper we wrote was in 2015, and it was in collaboration with Art Laffer. <clears throat> And so I said, Art, I want you to take this paper, Can Bitcoin Serve the Three Rolls of Money? And I want you to tear it apart. Now, Art, Art is known for his fiscal policy expertise, but his, his, um, mentor was Robert Mundell, who won a Nobel Prize for his monetary theory. And he was very involved in bringing the euro together. So I don't know how people feel about that these days, but nonetheless. I'm glad we're not part of it. Yes, there you go. So then, um, uh, so Art did rip it apart, and which was fantastic. And, and he came back to us and he said, I've been looking for this ever since we went off the gold exchange standard. He said, I may not, it's a rules-based monetary policy, rules-based monetary system. And I said, oh, and he said, I may not agree with the rule because he was thinking more in terms of inflation. So you'd want a price rule as opposed to store of value, which quantity, he says, but it's okay. It's a, it's a rule and we need to get back to this. And I said to him, aren't, how big could this be? And he said, well, how big is the U.S. monetary base? Now, Bitcoin was $250 at that time. So it was a, roughly a $6 billion network value or market cap. And I said, how? he said, well, uh, he said, how's the monetary? I said, it's $4.5 trillion. He said, there's your answer. I said, really? And I immediately, I, I put a lot of money, especially our analyst, Chris Berniski at the time. Hello, Chris. You know, Chris. Um, yeah. So our analyst, uh, he was the one really doing the work on the paper and hand selected uh, um, Yassine, uh, which has made us very happy. But he, um, your question again, I lost that. What was your moment where you realized, oh, which you've explained? Uh, so I, I put I don't think I've ever disclosed this before, but I put $100,000 in. $250. Yeah. I don't know how many Bitcoin that is. Uh, was that 400 Bitcoin? I don't even know. And I wasn't counting right. at the time. But, but, uh, and I've kept it all. But I, because as soon as he said that, the you light bulb You did that personally or with the fund? Couldn't do it with the fund nice. because we had to find a security. And so this thing called GBTC, yep. which everybody knows now is Grayscale uh, Bitcoin Investment Trust, um, that had the one-year holding period, and they were just cycling through that. So this is the rules of your fund, means you can't Yes, buy ETFs directly. can only own securities. Yes. And so we had to find one. And we found Grayscale. Actually, the, it, Grayscale was one uh, block away from us in Chelsea. Nice. And so we were. they opened their books. And uh, we had to go to the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, we had to do so much to get Bitcoin in. Um, so we put it in uh, ARKW, our next generation internet fund first. And then 
and then we put it into ARKK, which is the flagship fund. Um, but I think, and Chris, when he saw me do that, it, all of a sudden he felt so much more responsible. You know, no, he did anyway, but a hundred thousand is like, okay, she just did that and she did it off my research and, and so forth. So it was, he, he doubled down as well. So, I mean, it was, it's, it's a great story because, well, it ended well, right? Yeah. How was my math then? You were spot on. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so so and you can still only invest in securities in ETFs. In yes. ETFs, yeah. And um, so, therefore, you've invested in companies as well as uh, the Grayscale mm -hmm. Trust. Um, how do you feel about the performance of the Grayscale Trust? And do you no. basically see it as a fire sale? I do see it as a fire sale. I do ultimately think maybe it's going to take a new administration, but we'll get an SEC commissioner in there who Hester Pass. Oh yes, yes. Uh, we we know Hester, and yeah. and we're definitely aligned. Um, and uh, I I don't know. She she would be very controversial. I'd love it. But yeah, we would love that. Yeah, I know. So, uh, but. You know, just as you were saying, the UK, there is going to be regulatory arbitrage and, you know, the US risks, we're already seeing it happen in business moving offshore because of our regulatory system. Um, and a different administration and I would say, you know, someone, an administration that really cares about, you know, making sure innovation is very welcome here from a regulatory point of view, I think will grant uh, Grayscale, um, you know, conversion to uh, a Bitcoin ETF. And then that, and then that gap closes and that's, and a, and that's a nice day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what is it like as an investment? Because it is particularly weird, Bitcoin. It, it isn't a company. And while some people refer to it as a commodity, it's a particularly weird commodity because it's so controversial. Mm -hmm. um, some people have this kind of uh, weird hate towards it, even though they don't understand it. It yes. gets constantly attacked by the media. Yeah. Um, it is politically divisive, though we are seeing that gap close. We are seeing some uh, people more from, let's say, the the Democrat side come along, Ro Khanna and um, Senator Gillibrand have all mm -hmm. kind of expressed an interest in Bitcoin, which is great because we don't want it to be yes. a partisan yes. issue. But like you as an investor, it must be a particularly weird uh, uh commodity to be invested in and, and to try and explain to people? It isn't hard for me to explain. Okay. I mean, when you have conviction in, in, in something as, as a necessary innovation um, to help solve some of the world's problems, and, and I, um, I, I, I've had, um, my background is both economics and finance. So, you know, I feel very confident in what I'm saying. You know, this is the first global private, meaning no government oversight, digital rules-based monetary system. When I'm, when I'm explaining it like that, I, I ask everyone to listen to each of those words. Each one of them is very important. And this is one of the most profound innovations of our time. So my conviction, and it's born out of our research, it's born out great research that Yassine, Frank, and, and David are doing uh, now, uh, as well as what Chris has done, and, and the community largely. So there's no doubt in my mind. And, you know, many people think that I'm too confident uh, in in not just with Bitcoin, but all of our strategies. We face the same kind of pushback with all of our right. innovation strategies. This is nothing new. This feels the same. It's a little different to explain, but um, it's very. It's not a company, so more finance. Uh, but but it's it's a monetary system, which is economics, and I'm I'm in, I'm comfortable in both of those zones. Do you do you see a growing interest again in Bitcoin right now? Uh, are people talking to you a bit yes. more about it just because of what's happening in the economic environment? Um, we, we get questions all the time. I think, uh, people love to hear our, uh, our take on, excuse me, but crypto broadly. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. So, but what we talk about is in the way I just described Bitcoin, that's the money revolution. And then we have the financial services revolution, DeFi, a little more centralized, but, and then we have, uh, then the next generation internet, uh, revolution around 
digital property rights. And I realize all of these are, uh, involve property rights, but when you're talking about the creator economy and, and the blending of uh, consumption and investment, um, it's probably even more centralized and in that third bucket. Um, I, I think when people hear us uh, describe this new world, especially young people, it hits a responsive chord. And the young people are bringing their parents into it. So uh, that's an interesting dynamic. That's no, That really hasn't happened in my career before. Right. Yes. And they're bringing ARC to their parents as well. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you for your time. We could have done this for hours. Hopefully we will do this again because um, <laughs> yeah, it's, really it's just an absolute thank pleasure. You. And um, just to close up with a few, few questions, like what's coming now for ARC? What's the future for ARC? What should we be keeping an eye on? Oh, well, we're very excited. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of people look at ARC and say, you know, and think that we're on the defensive. We are on the offense. And uh, in a couple of ways, we've just launched a, a crossover public-private venture fund. And it's going to be, it's our first social distribution strategy. So it'll be distributed on something called the Titan app, which is Andries and Horowitz, a uh, 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 funded company. And uh, more germane to our conversation here is uh, we're launching two new strategies. Uh, they're, uh, they're separately managed accounts. So strategies, one focused on cryptocurrencies. And of course, Bitcoin's going to dominate that. Yep. There are going to be very few real currencies. And then the other one is more across crypto assets and and the three revolutions I, um, I, I mentioned, and it will be actively managed. Uh, we think there's going to be a lot of opportunity to add alpha if you're using Bitcoin as your base, um, or whatever you want as your benchmark, uh, with a crypto asset strategy, uh, spanning across the three revolutions. Wow. Have you looked at the convergence between Bitcoin and 10th tier football in? England, because, <laughs> because I, I think this is one of the best investment opportunities that there are. Because we are, <laughs> well, if, if you ever get to England and you want to go back to Cambridge, you can take a little journey to Bedford. You can ah. come on, you can watch some of our football. We're, I would we're, love to. We're top of the league. We've won every game. Oh, I love it. We are the Bitcoin team. Um, <laughs> uh, this was great. I absolutely love this. Uh, I did I hope too, to do Peter. it again. Yassine, we're uh, overdue uh, having you back on the show as thank well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank but you thank so you for much. coming in. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully we will do this again sometime soon. And really appreciate you coming in. Do you want to send people to anywhere? Oh, well, we have our research um, is on arc-invest.com. And if you want to see the... Um, the the how we get to our bitcoin price target which is more than a million dollars per per bitcoin in 2030 you will see in big ideas 2022 how we um how how we populate that mm -hmm. and it's all very reasonable if you look at how we get there it's like we're not making any extreme assumptions uh we're the the most the biggest assumption is that this is an, a really important insurance policy for everyone uh, in the world. So it's a very big idea. Well, it depends what a million dollars buys you then as well. We'll have to uh, see. But, but uh, if it does, I uh, I think I'll, my, my team's going to be very successful yes. because we hold Bitcoin and that's our strategy. Ah. That's how I'm going to get them up the least. Kathy, thank you yeah. so much for this. Thank you, Peter. This was an absolute pleasure. It was fun. And uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. Yes, thank you. All right, what do you think of that? Did you enjoy that show with Kathy? It's always great to hear from her. Now, yes, ARK Invest have had a difficult year with the value of their ETF dropping, but they're investing in some really interesting, world-changing technologies, and this is going to have speculative cycles. So, yes, it was great to get Kathy back on the show. I'm going to definitely try and get her back on in the future. I've had so many more questions. I'd love to sit down and have a good two, three-hour chat with Kathy about all things Bitcoin and investing. Apart from that, yeah, I'm off to Edinburgh now. Can't wait to see anyone who's up there going up for the Bitcoin conference. And we'll be leaving early Saturday because I've got a football match to get back to. We're playing away to Moulton. Very exciting. I know some of you are enjoying the football. I know some of you don't give a shit. But either way, it's a Bitcoin thing happening in my town. You know what? At the last meetup we just had, we had like 65 people there talking about Bitcoin in my little town of Bedford. How cool is that? All right, listen, I love you all. If you've got any questions about this, you want to reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com and I will get back to you. I do try and get back to everyone. Actually, I do get back to everyone apart from the people who send me weird shit. All right, have a great weekend and I will see you all next week. Bye.